2 Timothy chapter number 2, verse 15. This is the Apostle Paul talking to young Timothy, or probably middle-aged Timothy at this point. You can really get this sense of final words, culminating thoughts, wrapping up life. Verse 4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlists him. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, has preached in my gospel. Verse 2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, in trust of faithful men, who will be able to teach others also. Verse 12. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Which one? Bind them of these things in verse 14. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good. Only ruins the hearers. Now verse 15. Do your best. Sounds so weak. Not capturing the full magnitude of what Paul is trying to communicate. Maybe your translation says, be diligent. Be diligent. Work hard. Get it right. Go overboard. Make it your priority. Do your best. Be diligent. Work hard to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. Now look what he's talking about here. Rightly handling the word of God. Correctly interpreting the biblical truth. Dealing with the Bible in the right way. Getting it right when you preach and teach the Bible. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need at the judgment seat of Christ to be ashamed. For he or she, if they teach a Sunday school class, they teach the Bible, work really hard at getting it correct when they open the Bible. When they say, thus saith the Lord. Father, I just ask that you would be with us this morning as we do our very best to do just careful communication of truth 
In Jesus' name, amen. What's your thoughts, Brian? We're not going to exegete that text, although it would be a wonderful text to exegete. We went there because of this phrase, rightly handling the word of truth, interpreting biblical truth the correct way, getting it right when we deal with the Bible. And of course, we know that rightly handling doesn't mean the way we carry it or the way we hold it. We know that the, the heart of the message is the way we interpret texts. What I want to try to do this morning I want to try to explain to you why we could read a Bible text in this church and I could preach it this way, this way. And then you literally go to another church next week and the same text is read and they preach it this way. You're like, wait a minute, it was the exact same text. I, I mean, it wasn't a different text. They preached it this, my preacher preached it this way. I walked in that church and they preached it this way. For those listening on the audio, I'm moving from like east to west with my hands to north or to south. And for those of you who wonder, does this actually happen? Well, the Alpersons who were with us at the end of the Revelation study, and they went through the entire Revelation study, went to a church up north, and they got in the beginning of a Revelation study. Now think about that. You just left Revelation with this church, show up up north with Revelation in that church, and then they said he preached it all different from you. So obviously, like, there was a difference and there was a reason for a difference. Is there any hope that we're going to get it right this morning? Or? Beautiful. I love it when we re recycle the system and I only have 45 minutes to preach. I want to use this pair of glasses by way of illustration. Now, what color are these glasses? They're yellow, right? And if I put these glasses on and I'm oblivious to the fact that they're yellow, if I don't know that they're yellow, then it's going to impact the way I see the world and I may have a wrong coloring of things because I'm not aware of what color glasses I'm wearing. Are y'all following me? What I want to try to illustrate with you this morning is everybody is wearing glasses when they read the Bible. So let's start with that. There isn't anyone that isn't wearing glasses. You can act like you're not and put yourself above everybody else and suggest for a moment that yours are clear, but that's simply not true. We all have presuppositions when we come to the Word of God. Every one of us do. All of us have presuppositions. Those are things that we believe to be true. For example, all of us share a presupposition this morning. And that is that the Bible is the Word of God. You wouldn't be here this morning if you didn't have that presupposition unless you're made to come by one of your parents. But those of us that came of our own free will, it still doesn't match. Of course, on a ridiculously complicated message, we're going to have these technical difficulties. So the glasses I wear impact the way I read scripture. The presuppositions I bring to the text impact the way I read scripture. And I intend to show you eventually on these green, solid green screens right here. Beautiful. Thank you. What I mean by that? What are the illustrations? 
So this is not a sermon. All right? So come back next week or stay for 1045 for a sermon. I'm trying to do a seminar on how we interpret Scripture. And everyone doesn't agree on how it's done. The fancy word for this, the seminary level word for this is hermeneutics. It's how we interpret Scripture. It's the method by which we interpret Scripture. It's the presuppositions that we have that lend towards how we interpret Scripture. There's a good book if you want to learn more about this. It's called Covenantal and Dispensational Theologies, Four Views on the Continuity of Scripture. Now, the beauty of a Four Views book is that the publisher who wants to make money with the book will seek out the leading theologians in each of these areas and contract with them to provide their best illustration of why they're right. And the idea behind a book like this is now you, the reader, having read all four views, you get to what? You get to choose. You get to hear them argue with each other. You get to tell them, you read how they tell each other how they're wrong. And you get to hear them argue their case. So I'm going to show you a quotation from the book. And I'm not trying to demean this brother in Christ. And we've said already numerous times, this is an in-house discussion. Brothers and sisters in Christ who love each other and love Jesus disagree on these issues. So this is a traditional dispensationalist writing this, so I'm not taking him out of context and I'm not trying to build a straw man. This is his perspective. Traditional dispensationalists are loath to speak of the New Testament as having priority in the interpretation of the Old. Especially when this approach obliges us to see later revelation altering the meaning of plainly intended by the original authors and understood by the original readers. And this is the disagreement. This is the heart of the disagreement. Your Bible, you got to get this, 1,600 years, 40 different authors, three different languages, three different continents, no book in the world is like that. No book is like that. No one has a book like this. So don't get frustrated that we all don't come to the same conclusion when we're analyzing something with 66 books within it over 1,500 years, 40 different authors. I think that we all go, 2 Timothy 2.15, work hard to get it right, but when it becomes work hard, we actually don't want a sermon in which you have to work hard. In other words, you, the listener, have to work hard. I, the preacher, have to work hard. We have to work hard. It's not easy. It is complicated. New Covenant theologians believe that the New Testament revelation, the New Covenant revelation of an Old Testament passage takes precedent over the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation, also known as originalism. Do you see the conflict? Nod your head if you see the conflict. So we have a, we have a totally different hermeneutic. One says the original author's main, plain meaning is what is the priority. And the other says, no, if the New Testament speaks to it, 
What the New Testament said superimposes truth on it. That's the difference. Turn to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. And all I intend on doing for the rest of the sermon is to give you illustration and example, one right after another, until we run out of time. And I have more than enough, so we'll just have to stop when we get to the end. Turn to Psalm 118. All you're learning this morning is to get a better idea of what color glasses a commentator or a preacher or a teacher or even the notes in a study Bible, what color glasses are they wearing? How do they view scripture? This is the beautiful psalm, oh give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. And it's just nothing but an incredible praise to the Lord. And you get to verse 22. Look at verse 22 with me. And 22 has this plain, simple, almost out of context kind of statement. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's all you get. That's all. Now, I want you to imagine yourself having no New Testament. Get it? No New Testament. Tell me what that is. No New Testament. Dig into it. I need you to dig in. Let's go. Get busy. Tell me the depth of the stone that the builders rejected has been rejected. The cornerstone has been rejected. Use the literal, historical, grammatical method. Use it, please. Use it to... Go ahead, Brian. Use it. How would you even know it's not a stone? How would you not even know that it isn't a particular stone? What, what stone was it that was rejected? Because the plain, literal meaning would have to be taken as a stone is a... And I know this is difficult, but y'all can participate just a little bit. A stone's a stone. See, you already went there. You're so knowledgeable in your Bible, you didn't even pause with stone. Like, for, you didn't, for even a millisecond, you didn't even stop and say, was it granite? How big was it? You, you immediately went where? And why did you, Ty, why did you immediately go to Jesus? Because of other Old Testament verses, right? Lots of other Old Testament verses that also tell you about the stone, right? No. You can study all your other 38 New Old Testament books and you will get no more revelation concerning the stone. You can read every verse in every chapter of every Old Testament book and you still won't nothing about who the stone is. Do you understand that? You have to get to the New Testament. And you get to Acts chapter 4 reading today in the NASB let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus the Nazarene whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by this man stands here before you in good health he is the stone 
I don't need to do any more research. Do you get that, church? I don't need to do anything else with the historical, grammatical, what? Boom, done, set, period. The stone is Jesus. The stone's Jesus. Please understand what I just did. I used the New Testament to alter the meaning of the Old Testament. Does everyone get that? A stone is not a stone, as you think of it. A stone is a metaphor. A stone is a representation of the degree to which Jesus Christ becomes the foundation for something. Now the Apostle Peter picks up on that idea and he calls all of us a bunch of rocks. And normally that's not a compliment when you're called a rock. Right? In the past, I've used rock with some pretty heavy-duty negative connotations. Okay? Not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Okay? But in this case, we become living, living stones. We get that the idea is a metaphor that's just incredible. He's the chief cornerstone, and we are the living stones, and we're building something. So this is our first example of where without the New Testament, it would be impossible to understand Psalm 18. But wait a minute. Let's be clear. Likewise, without the Old Testament... Where would that stone idea come from? Get it? So we're not poo-pooing the Old Testament. We're elevating and saying, yes, we need that incredible foundation of 39 Hebrew books written over 1,200, 1,400 years. We need that. But when we struggle at understanding it, and we have a New Testament passage that clearly explains what it is. We don't go like this with them. Putting my hands side by side. We go like this. And we use the New Testament to understand it. Turn to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. Another controversial example. Malachi chapter 4. You there yet? Malachi chapter 4. Behold, look, see, I will send you. I will send you who? Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Plain, historical, original meaning. Elijah is Elijah. And he's coming back. Can we all agree on that? Do you think that Malachi thought Elijah was coming back? Yes, absolutely. All of them did. Thanks, Dr. Farmer. All of them did. Right? Until Jesus decides to alter the meaning of the text. Turn to Matthew 13. Turn to Matthew 13, Matthew I mean, 11, 13, Matthew 17. I'll have them on the screen for you. Matthew 11, Matthew 17. 
11 first, 17 seconds. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. The violent take it by force in verse 12. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, and many are not, even today. Even today they're not willing to accept it. He is Elijah who is to come. Now, what is the plain meaning of what Jesus said? What is the plain meaning of what Jesus said? John the Baptist is who? Elijah. Now, did Jesus alter the meaning of Malachi 4? Yes or no? Mike, you said no for what reason? Because the spirit of Elijah, the, the representation, the metaphoric idea of a prophet who was like Elijah did in fact come back. But if I take the literal, historical, grammatical, or originalist idea, which is the fact that Elijah is coming, I mean, that's why they're asking the question, are you Elijah? Turn to chapter 17 if you want to, it's on the screen. They're still struggling with it. He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did not recognize him, but did him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So what you're learning this morning, hopefully, is that the color of the lens affects how you read Scripture. So if you read a commentator and he doesn't elevate this idea that Elijah has already come. And I could show you multiple examples this morning of people who believe that Elijah is still having to come because of Malachi chapter 4. How many of you have heard that Elijah and Moses have to be the two witnesses of Revelation? That's a common idea. It's a very common idea. I did not preach it that way. And the reason I did not preach it that way when I got to Revelation is because Jesus told me that Elijah has already come. So I submitted to the authority of King Jesus in Matthew 11 and Matthew 17 and determined that the Malachi 4 prophecy has already been fulfilled. That's right. That's right. But if you interpret Old and New Testament on a level playing field, that is to say that one does not supersede the other, then you have to determine that the Malachi 4 prophecy has yet to be fulfilled. So you might say to me, how do they do that? And this is the word that you'll hear them use. Analogous. Analogous. It's an analogy. So instead of it being a literal fulfillment, the author Matthew, through Jesus, is making an analogy that John the Baptist is like Elijah, 
but the prophecy has yet to be fulfilled. But I don't believe that that's the spirit of what Jesus said. Jesus said that he, he is Elijah who is to come. Please understand what's happening here. Don't miss this. I know this is difficult, but don't miss this. The plain literal meaning of he is Elijah who is to come is being ignored so that the plain literal meaning of the Old Testament can be evaluated, elevated. If I tell you that Elijah has already come and you say, but he's still coming, then you have to have another text somewhere that indicates he's still coming. Again, the issue becomes, what does it mean to alter the plainly intended of the original authors? So do I interpret scripture on a level playing field or do some passages provide clear guidance concerning others? Let's consider Genesis 12, 3 together. We've been going to it enough recently that I'm sure you know what's in Genesis 12, 3. If you don't, you're not remembering enough from one week to another. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is gigantic. What is it, church? It's the Abrahamic covenant. Everyone in the church should know that Genesis 12 is the start of the Abrahamic covenant. I want to give you an illustration of what I mean by this. How important this is. Let's look at verse number three. Let's look at verse number three. Let's consider verse number three together. You're preaching this. You're leading up men's prayer breakfast. You're doing this in your Sunday school class. This is the text that you have been assigned in power hour. This is what you're going over in your Sunday school class. You get to verse number three and it says, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What is the reasonable question that you, the teacher of the Bible, need to be able to explain to your audience concerning verse number three? How? In what way? That's a reasonable, is that not a reasonable question to have to answer? Like, the Bible says all the families of the earth will be blessed, and you want to know, how's that going to come to fruition? And furthermore, you should want to know, what is that? What is that blessing? Here's the reality, Quinn, all the way in the back. You can read your entire Old Testament and never come to a conclusion concerning what that blessing is. There is nothing in the rest of the Old Testament that will tell you what that blessing is. Where do you have to go in order to find out what that blessing is? Who knows where you have to go in order to find out where that blessing is? Romans will do it and where else? Even clearer. Galatians. Galatians 3. Galatians 3. You go to Galatians 3. Is the blessing tangible or spiritual? Is there anything in the Hebrew language that would help me figure out what this blessing is? Will studying the word blessing throughout the entire Old Testament tell me anything more about what the blessing is? And the answer is no, no, and more no's. Think about the normal progression of how we would study. And it would go something like this. First study blessing in the context of Genesis 12. 
Then study blessing in the context of the entire book of Genesis. Then study blessing in the context of the entire what? Old Testament. And here's the reality, church. If you did that, one, two, and three, you still would not arrive at the correct conclusion. How many of you know what I mean by that? How many are tracking what I'm saying? You, there, there's a handful of you that are like, man, yeah, I get exactly what you're saying. I can see that if I studied all of blessing in the entire, I still wouldn't get there. And this is a big deal because look how it's repeated. Genesis 18, 18, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. In your offspring, all the nations shall be blessed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is a dividing point in the evangelical church. Is this a blessing that the nations can enjoy now? Or is this a future blessing that the nations can anticipate? Is this nations as in Canada, Mexico, or is this nations as in Gentiles, ethnicities? There's not uniform agreement. So where are we turning? We're turning to Galatians 3. Galatians is so key. Ladies, you're going to be doing Galatians in your Tuesday Bible study. And you're going to have such an opportunity to look at all these issues. Galatians 3, 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's an entire point of disagreement right now. Who is the seed of Abraham? And the scripture foreseeing... That God would, here it is right there, underlining your Bible, if you don't have it underlined already, would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the good news to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations, so Genesis 12, it's nations and families, and then after that it moved for the rest of the three times the nations. And you, all the nations, shall be blessed. Now, I can definitively say, as long as the Apostle Paul is led by the Holy Spirit and is correct, and I can tell you for sure that the blessing of Genesis 12, 3 is justification by faith. How did I derive at that conclusion? I use the New Testament to do what, church? Interpret the Old Testament. Everyone getting it? And without the New Testament, I would be left where? In the dark. Wondering, physical, spiritual blessing, temporal blessing, eternal blessing, last a little while, last a long time. Luke 24, Jesus said, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Then he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Please listen to me. If... 
Please listen. You decide that you're only going to look for the plain, literal, grammatical, historical meaning of the text, you're going to miss Jesus. You're going to miss Jesus. How many times is the word Jesus in the Old Testament? How many times? It's a lot, right? Is it one time? It's not even one time, is it? So obviously Jesus is not in there in the sense of the plain, literal, historical, grammatical way. What are you looking for when you look for Jesus in the Old Testament? Give me an example. What are you looking for? Yell it back at me. What? Messiah. Sure. What else? Son of man. What else? Son of David. What else? Ah, somebody said it. Types. Shadows. Imagery, metaphors, analogies. Is the ark a type of Christ? Yes or no? 100%. How about Isaac? How about Isaac? Is Isaac a type of Christ? Is the ram a type of Christ? The ram. And yet neither one of those would be the literal, historical, grammatical interpretation. Because Isaac is Isaac and the ram is a ram. And visible manifestations of God, like the angel of the Lord, Yahweh's angel. I'm trying to help you understand how we're expected to look at the Old Testament. Turn to Psalm 16.10. Psalm 16.10. Turn to Psalm 16.10 for another illustration of this. And, And Jesus is in the Psalms everywhere. Everywhere. Psalm 1610. Now this is a psalm of David. Very clear. Uniform agreement that this is a song of David. This is one of David's psalms. David is the I who says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. David is the one who says, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David said that. David said that. Then if you turn to Acts 2 or looking on the screen, the Apostle Peter says, For David concerning him said, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand. I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will do in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. Now look at what Peter says. The Apostle Peter says, brothers, verse 29. Brothers, may I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that Ezebo died and was buried and his tomb is with us. To this day. Now look what he just did there. He quoted from Psalm 16. In which David said. You're not going to abandon me in Sheol. You're not going to let the Holy One see corruption. And Peter said. He's right over there. Do you see the tombstone? Like there was universal agreement. That his bones were there. 
Do you understand that that meant that David saw corruption? Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. A church, I just gave you a concrete example that if you read Psalm 16 without Acts, you would come to the wrong conclusion. You could preach Psalm 16 on a Sunday morning and say that David's body did not see corruption. See, the word of God says it. If you chose to not use your New Testament, you would derive at a conclusion that the Holy Spirit did not want you to derive at. See, one of the reasons why you're looking at me like, of course, Pastor Sean, is because even when I read that, you immediately went to, G to Acts chapter 2. You have so much New Testament in your brain that you can't even divorce yourself of all the presuppositions that you have. But I want you to imagine that you've never read Acts chapter 2. You've never heard a single sermon on that. You would not conclude that David was talking about somebody else in that psalm. You would conclude that David was talking about who? Himself. And then Peter says he's a prophet and he was actually talking about the Messiah. And the Messiah is the one that did not see corruption. I give it, we have time for one more example. So let's look at Acts chapter 2. Because this is a big one. And we'll be done with this. I think this has been a sufficient number to give you just a basic idea of what happens concerning how we let the influ Old New Testament or don't let the New Testament influence us. So in verse number 16 of chapter number 2, having had this incredible experience of the Holy Spirit being poured out, the Apostle Peter, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, says... But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, now look at these words. This is what was uttered under the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be God shall declare, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants, female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show you wonders in heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood, fire, vapor of smoke. Sun shall be turned to darkness, moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes to a great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Peter stands up and says, this is what Joel was talking about in Joel 2. Does everyone see this? Okay. Here's John MacArthur's note to give you a perspective. And we love John MacArthur. And he's a saint on saints. And he's brilliant in everything. I'm just trying to show you what color glasses he wears when he writes his commentaries. Joel's prophecy will not be completely fulfilled until the millennial kingdom and the final judgment. But Peter using it shows that Pentecost was a pre-fulfillment, a taste of what will happen in the millennial kingdom when the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. Church, that's not what Peter said. 
Peter said, this is what? Peter didn't say it's a precursor. Peter said it was fulfilled. Here's Charles Ryrie, if you have a Ryrie study Bible. The fulfillment of this prophecy will be in the last days. Immediately preceding Christ when all the particulars of the prophecy will come to pass. Peter reminded his hearers that knowing Joel's prophecy, they should have recognized what they were seeing as the work of the Spirit, not a result of drunkenness. Is that it? Is that all I'm supposed to take away from that? Is that the point that Peter was making? Was that the point that Peter was making? Was that this spirit work was not drunkenness because of the prophet Joel? I think they're wrong. But again, I could be wrong. It's a matter of how we're interpreting Scripture. I'm interpreting that when Peter says this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel, that that's exactly what he meant. When the King James says this is that, I take that to mean this is that. I don't take it to mean that this is sort of that or kind of that or almost that or a little bit of that or a little bit of that. And that's the disagreement we're having this morning. The fact that there is no record of sun being darkened or moon turning to blood does not cause me to doubt Peter's words. Say, why not, Pastor Sean? Because I think that that kind of language is figurative. I don't actually believe that God is going to turn the physical stone blood to a liquid substance called blood. I don't believe that. I think it's figurative language that the Israelites are used to hearing. A really big deal. But everyone doesn't agree with me. Lots and lots of people talk about a blood moon. You'll hear that. And that's a really big deal when we're going to have a get ready for the coming Jesus. There's a blood moon. The reason you don't hear me preaching the hype like that is because I believe that Peter told me it was already fulfilled. That I don't have to be looking for another blood moon. Because according to the Apostle Peter, my understanding is the literal fulfillment was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the fact that all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, could call upon the Lord. And this was incredible. By faith they could be saved. That what I'm supposed to take away from this passage is not each and every particular So these are my three reasons and I'll be done. First, because of the plain meaning of this is that. This is that. Because that which must be understood literally, pour out the Spirit and call on the name of the Lord, did in fact happen. In my view, everything else can be figurative. I'll give you one last example without turning to it in one minute. In Psalm 22, read it this afternoon. Psalm 22, it's an amazing psalm. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Get the context, that's the song. All right? Psalm 22, read it this afternoon. Psalm 22 says dogs are there. Dogs, dogs. It talks about dogs. Dogs. You can go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Brian, have you ever read about dogs at the cross of Jesus? Dogs. Four-legged dogs at the cross of Jesus. Wait a minute. Nobody says Psalm 22 wasn't fulfilled because they couldn't find a dog at the cross. I think the dogs 
are a metaphor for the Gentiles. Gentiles. I think I have scripture support for that. Right? She said, even the dogs get the crumbs from the master's table. So I don't think I have to have dogs in Psalm 22 to have a full fulfillment. Just like I don't think I have to have a blood moon in Acts chapter 2 to have a full fulfillment. Because I believe it represented something. And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said it was sufficiently fulfilled. Therefore, I don't have to look for a Joel 2 experience. Like I don't have to look for an Elijah experience. Because it's already happened. Father in heaven, bless us as we dismiss the Sunday school. In Jesus' name, amen.